I hate to do this to you because you just did such a fantastic job on that, but... Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Joseph Drowski here with Todd Mack, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we have another special guest. Todd Peterson is returning to talk about Batman in the Court of Owls, a story written by Scott Snyder and drawn by Greg Capullo. It was published in Batman comic books with cover dates between September 2011 and May 2012. Welcome, Todd Peterson. It's good to be here. Welcome back. So this storyline was uh, part of DC's New 52 Todd Peterson, would you like to explain New 52 to our listeners? New 52 is the thing that helped old guys like me get back into comics. That was its goal. That was its goal. Well, it was really interesting. Um, I was trying to get my kids interested in comics, and I was like, let's take a look at X-Men. Hmm. Nope. Way too complicated. Can't explain it. There was no entry point. And um, so we've got a – Todd and I have got a local – uh, shop and I kind of went down there when they were getting started and he told me about the reboot because I was really off comics for the most part until the new 52 came back in and anyways it, I think it was a wise choice for DC to say let's help people re-enter people are coming back to comics because of the movies um, people are showing a real interest in this um, it's moving off the margins I think for a lot of people it wasn't just weird adult neckbeard collectors <laughs> lots and lots of people were coming to it and i think this really helped gave people access points i mean there were great story runs with batman great story uh lines with justice league jeff john's writing for that justice league reboot is just fantastic and for me i i did a fun thing i took a year of batgirl for my daughter and flash for my son characters they like and i bought a year's worth of the comics bagged them and boarded them and i've hidden them from them <laughs> And my wife, who um, did book repair uh, in the uh, BYU library, has great skills with uh, making books from scratch. And she's going to make slip cases for them. And uh, when they're older, I'm going to give them a slip case with mint condition first run of the new 52 launches. Wow. So you use the word reboot just for any listeners who aren't familiar. DC Comics has a huge continuity that I mean, technically can go back to 1938 with the first Superman. But periodically they've done this full reboot where they say the continuity of all these interlinking stories and character histories has gotten too confusing. So we're just going to clean the slate. And here's a new number one that is like the first issue and all the past continuity continuity doesn't matter. New 52 kind of tried to have its cake and eat it, too, and kind of, like, did a half reboot. Yeah, that's how I they, feel. They gave everything a new number one, uh, and some of the old continuity didn't matter, and some did, and it was never super clear <laughs> to, to readers. This was that's the criticism. It was, it was never super clear what counted and what didn't from pre-New 52. It was called the New 52 uh, because they were launching 52 new, new number one issues, uh, That and, the, and their goal was every month to have 52 issues published. <laughs> um, so it's the like Batman. We don't want oh. this to be too complicated for people, so we're just going to launch 52 new <laughs> stories today. And if you want to keep up on things, then you just have to. All you have to do is read 52 new stories every week. Hey, it's they, nuke and pave. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they, even, they released an omnibus of all the issue number ones. That was like a hundred dollars to get all 52 number one issues that they launched, and everyone was like, "Is there going to be a?" 
omnibus number two. Yeah, really. <laughs> number two. <laughs> <laughs> just, just keep it going. Uh, I did not follow very many of the titles when they came out, but from reviews I read and everything, Batman was one that definitely everyone said worked. Wonder Woman was a really popular relaunch. You mentioned the the Justice League was pretty popular when that one relaunched. Some of the others, my understanding is, were not quite as successful as far as their stated goal of being friendly to new readers. I think Batgirl. Yeah. Bat, Batgirl, I've heard really good things about. That was pretty great, and Swamp Thing was insane. That was one of the other <laughs> titles that Snyder um, wrote, and it was it was crazy stuff. I loved it. So that's uh, the, this storyline was the the you know new Batman number one, uh, and we say it's a reboot, but it, it doesn't start with a uh, like an origin story of Batman. They just kind of assume everyone knows <laughs> knows uh, who Batman is. They know that he has you know four Robins running around and with new. <laughs> New code names. So that was a little uh, bit too which, much of an assumption for me. I was a little. Which, <laughs> speaking of the having their cake and eating it too with continuity, when they started the new Fifty Two, they said superheroes were roughly five years into their world. So <laughs> Batman somehow had been operating for five years, had four Robins, and one of them is a twelve-year-old son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that math didn't add up. Yeah. Producer Andrew pointing out one of one of the few flaws that we could find in this. Uh, but I, this story, just the quick, I guess, spoiler-free synopsis before we, we uh, get into the more spoilery zone. It's a really fun story wherein Batman, you know, he's operating. He has kind of his family of, of helpers. Uh, like his first Robin now goes by the name Nightwing. There's a second Robin is Red Robin. Then there's the current Robin is his son. Uh, but uh, And what they, he finds, the point of this one is that he finds out there's a secret society that has been operating within Gotham since Gotham was founded you know, in colonial times called the Court of Owls. And there's, there was a nursery rhyme that kind of talked about the Court of Owls in Gotham, but everyone assumed it was just kind of an urban legend, much like Batman had been believed to be an urban legend. And this is his discovery that this thing is really true. There's a secret within his city, the city that he's obsessed with and feels like he knows every inch there's something he didn't know about. So if that sounds interesting, uh, you can purchase the collection of this first uh, seven issues for a very reasonable price on Amazon, or it's available through a different, a few different digital apps as well. I know Comicology has it, and we'll have some links for those in our show notes. All right. So should we dive into this? Oh, yeah. Does anybody have anything else to say about how they came to this? Joseph, when was the first time you read this? Uh, I read this uh, last night for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> really? No, that's that's shock- That's, that's surprising to me. I've read a lot of Batman in my day, <laughs> um, but anything that was published in the last five years, it's kind of hit or miss if I've, if I've read it. I've been aware of it because I listen to a weekly podcast that kind of recaps the most important uh, issues of the last week. So I knew the storyline was going on and everything, and I was kind of familiar with with the beats of some of it, but I hadn't actually read it until last night. Uh, and it was delightful. It made me want to immediately go get the next chapter in the story. Yeah, it definitely leaves on a on a cliffhanger. I've, I heard about this uh, on Back to Work, which is a podcast that I've mentioned on this podcast before with uh, Merlin Mann and Dan Benjamin. They, they talk often about uh, comics and... Uh, they've mentioned Court of Owls and Comixology had a sale uh, a couple of years ago, a year ago, at, at Christmas time, and I got some notification. <laughs> I remember I was in the shoe store with my kids; they were getting shoes, and I got this notification that said, "You know, buy your Batman comics on sale right now." And so I called, <laughs> I called you, Joe, 
and said, <laughs> there are all of these Batman comics on sale. Which ones should I get? Which ones are the best? And there were a few different ones. Court of Owls was one of them and turned out to be the one that I, I liked the most by a long, long shot. Well, I can tell you the reason I recommended it uh, is strictly because of the iFanboy podcast. That's the <laughs> podcast I was just mentioning. And they uh, bought every single New 52 number one issue and gave a review. And this is the one that they raved about the most. It's uh, really good. Of Owls. I like it. So uh, without further Here, ado – oh, go ahead. Let me uh, throw in a story. Uh, Scott Snyder and I were going to be on a panel together at um, the Associated Writing Programs. That's the National Creative Writing Conference. We had a panel with a friend of mine from Canvas. He put it all together. Scott Snyder had, was just getting started with American Vampire, and he had just had a, a big book. Um, uh, short stories. Uh, gosh, what is it called? It was uh, um, who need, uh, superhero. Uh, who needs it was a superhero? Vo- no, it's voodoo something. Voodoo heart. But he also had a, um, he had a short story and a superhero short story collection as well. That kind of put him. On. Yeah, and so yeah. It turns out. Um, sorry, Merlin man. Turns out that Scott Snyder <laughs> um, kind of went through the MFA creative writing thing. He was at Brown University. He went through the Columbia. Um, uh, MFA in creative writing, which is kind of the top program in the nation. And uh, he, so he'd been an academic fiction writer for the most part. And then he had this interesting switch over into comics. And so we were going to talk about how to teach and use graphic novels in the creative writing classroom because I'd been doing a bunch of stuff in theory of visual narrative. And those dummies didn't accept our proposal. And I bet you they're totally <laughs> kicking themselves now. <laughs> like, who's this Scott Snyder guy anyway? Um, and it was a bummer. I was really excited to get a chance to spend some time with him in Chicago and, and kind of get to know uh, everything. So when this is all done, I'm going to see if I can go back through some of those old emails where we're working this out and send him a link and see what he thinks. Oh, so awesome. we'll all have to be on our best behavior and be super smart. Okay. But, but <laughs> from the, the exchanges that we had as we were prepping this – um, he's just a great guy, and, and I think that that's what's kind of cool. Um, in comics now, we're seeing a lot of people crossing over from literary writing. Uh, there's a guy, Benjamin Percy. Uh, I don't know if you follow any more DC. He's, um, you know, again, he teaches college up in Minnesota. He's a friend of a friend, and so I got hooked up that way. He's, he's writing Green Arrow now. No. Uh, and he'd um, been uh, a literary writer as well. So there's this really interesting thing happening where – uh, I guess high art, low art is combining in comics. I mean, 10 years ago, you were a comics writer, and that was it. And and now there's some really interesting stuff going on. So I think that some of the complexity that we, you can see in uh, these Scott Snyder Batman stories is coming from him having, you know, coming from a real writerly place yeah. uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to just a pop culture place. Cool. I think uh, just real quick, when you said the high art, low art, it made me think of some of the reverse that we've seen. Like Neil Gaiman has kind of become accepted, accepted as the high literary writer, yeah. Uh, even as he keeps his toe in the more pop side of things, and then Michael Chabon writing uh, Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, but then also did some comic book work right after that. Joss Whedon, yeah. Joss Whedon doing Astonishing X Men and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Avengers, and then as a break, he does. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. And Orson Carr doing Iron Man. What's better the, to do the alcoholic superhero than the Mormon writer? That's right. Um, <laughs> but, but I think that these complexities are really, really an uh, interesting part of what's happening in comics right now. That it's, it's just not this dime store stuff I think, in the least. I think it also encourages uh, me 
and hopefully other readers that when you pick even when you pick something up that seems like dime store hollywood blockbuster whatever there's a good chance that whoever wrote that is actually really really smart and if you pay attention you may be surprised that uh, that you could find some some good material in there deep stuff it should give you permission to also let yourself go deep i mean cuz i read the stuff for to give my brain a little chance to relax from all this heady stuff that um, I have to do at school, and so I just read it to shut off. But when I'm reading Snyder's stuff in particular and and Alan Moore and whatever, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This is actually going to be um, a little bit of work. Yeah. Okay. There, there, there is an interview with Scott Snyder on the Fat Man on Batman podcast, <laughs> and he goes into a lot of this stuff uh, from his own experience and, and dealing with how he got into publishing and writing and how lucky he felt to get the chance to write Batman the way he did. And it's, it's very interesting if people want to check that out. Okay. Are we ready for this? Let's do it. Hit us with the, uh, the full synopsis, the full, the full one. Here it goes. Buckle up. Um, Oh, I have to ask one question. When, uh, when there's a voiceover in a comic, do we call that a voiceover? You mean the narration captions? Yes. Can I call that a voiceover? I call it a voiceover. Okay. Yeah. Run with it. Our story begins with a voiceover uh, from Batman. He says that a newspaper in Gotham City has for years run a section called Gotham Is, in which readers can write in and sum up what they feel epitomizes their city in one to three words. Although some people write about the dark side of Gotham, sometimes even saying things like Gotham is Two-Face, referring to the villains, uh, Batman likes the common idea that Gotham is Batman because he believes that he's a symbol of what's best about the city. And as this narration is going on, we see Batman duking it out with a bunch of famous supervillains who are trying to break out of Arkham Asylum. In the end, with the help of the Joker, you heard it right, the Joker, he wins. Uh, Later we find out that the person we thought was the Joker was really Batman's team member Dick Grayson, uh, also known as Nightwing, also known as the previous Robin. Uh, They talk for a bit in the Batcave, and then they team up with some other Bat friends to go to a swanky party where... Uh, Bruce Wayne, that's Batman's secret identity, in case you didn't know, uh, has to give a speech. He talks about Gotham's future and announces a big program to clean up the town that will be uh, – and that this program will be backed up uh, by Wayne Industries. While he's at the party, Bruce meets a man named Lincoln March who will be running for mayor. While they're talking, Bruce finds out that there has been a strange murder, and he excuses himself. It turns out that the victim of the murder is a John Doe with multiple – I mean multiple – stab wounds. He has been pinned to a wall with throwing knives. These walls are curious, uh, knives are curious because they have an owl mark on the hilt. There is also a message written on the wall. Bruce Wayne will die tomorrow. There's a uh, very little subtlety <laughs> in this murder. Uh, when Batman analyzes some DNA found underneath, underneath the, the victim's fingernails, he finds that it belongs to Dick Grayson, also known as, <laughs> I accidentally wrote right wing. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know anything about uh, Dick Grayson's political leanings. <laughs> <laughs> but his name is uh, Nightwing, not Rightwing. Uh, another Batman voiceover then tells us that the history, uh, the history of the original Wayne Tower, he says the glass on the top floor was made to be unbreakable. Then we see Bruce Wayne with knives sticking out of him, thrown through one of those unbreakable windows, plummeting toward his death. 24 hours earlier, Batman is checking the autopsy results on the John Doe. He realizes that the victim has a, uh, an owl marking on his wisdom tooth. Someone mentions a mysterious legend about a group called the Court of Owls, but Batman dismisses, his, uh, dismisses it as just that, a legend. 
Uh, Bruce confronts Dick later about uh, the DNA under the Vic's fingernails, but it turns out that Grayson has a good alibi. Later, Bruce meets Lincoln March at the top of the original Wayne Tower. He tells Bruce something... Uh, uh, March tells Bruce, something bad has come back, Bruce. Something ancient and powerful and evil. Just then, a bad guy dressed as an owl, this is much scarier than it sounds, stabs Lincoln <laughs> and then attacks Bruce. Uh, Wayne tries to play this cool so as not to draw attention to the fact that he is really Batman, but he can't beat the owl guy, even when he really tries. Sort of a Princess Bride, like a... I am not left-handed either, <laughs> uh, but he can't, he can't beat the guy. And then the villain announces, Bruce Wayne, the Court of Owls, has sentenced you to die. And then they both go out the window, but Bruce lands on a gargoyle that only he would have known about, and the bad guy falls to his death. But wait, he wakes up in the ambulance and kills the paramedics and then escapes. Wayne then tells the reader, you can't, they can't use Gotham's legends against me. I am the only legend Gotham needs. Now it's 1922 in Gotham City, and a paranoid Alan Wayne, who is Bruce's great-great-grandfather, falls into the sewer and apparently dies. Uh, we find out that the owl villain is called the Talon, and that the Court of Owls is a powerful group that has been rumored to have ruled Gotham City in secret since colonial times. Alan Wayne had been obsessed with owls in his old age. Bruce visits Lincoln in the hospital. It turns out the politician has been threatened by owls. There is even a scary nursery rhyme about the court. Beware the court of owls that watches all the time, ruling Gotham from shadowed perch behind granite and lime. They watch you at your hearth. They watch you in your bed. Speak not a whispered word of them or they'll send the talon for your head. Uh, Bruce investigates and finds a hidden owl lair in the non-existent 13th floor of Wayne Tower. Then he investigates more and finds a bunch of lairs all over the city, even some in buildings that he owns. One of them has a tripwire, and it blows up, and Batman's inside. The end. No. <laughs> Actually, doesn't end there. Uh, by now, it looks like Bruce Wayne is obsessed with the case. Dick confronts him. Bruce tells him the court can't be real. Dick challenges him uh, to face the facts. Bruce says that, to Dick that it can't be true because he's already looked into the Court of Owls when he was a boy after his parents were killed. Uh, he thought that they hadn't been mugged by some you know, random stranger, but that the court had behi been behind their deaths. Uh, then he – this was his kind of first detective case, and he found what he thought would be the court's lair, and it turns out that it wasn't. And he ended up being locked in this abandoned place for over a week, and he nearly died. And since then, he investigated a couple of other times the court, and he always comes up empty, and he tells Dick that experience has taught him to never let his emotions guide a case. Uh, so then he goes and exhumes his great-great-grandfather's body and finds that this uh, that the grandfather was not drowned in the sewer but was stabbed to death by nearly 50 knives. Then he falls into a crazy labyrinth. Uh, then Bruce spends over a week inside of this labyrinth, and the court is messing with his mind, and he grows more and more haggard and closer and closer to madness. Finally, he's attacked by the talons, stabbed through the belly. The court announces once again that uh, Batman must die or Bruce Wayne must die. Uh, the talent beats him to a pulp, a little girl with an owl mask. So all these people with owl masks are kind of watching this fight between Batman and uh, Again, the talent. it needs to be said, way creepier than just saying person with an owl mask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the, so then there's this little tiny girl with a little doll, and she's telling the talent to hurt Batman even more. Uh, but then finally... Uh, Batman sees the face of his great-great-grandfather in, in a picture on the wall, and he musters all his strength, and he beats the talent. He creates an explosion, barely escapes, falls into freezing water, can't get out, looks like he's dead. And then an old woman with an owl mask tells her henchmen to not revive the talent that, Bruce had, or that Batman had killed, but to wake up the others. This does not sound very good. 
Uh, Batman is rescued and revived by an unknown girl named Harper. He finds his way back to the Batcave. He gets his hand somehow on the dead Talon from the Labyrinth. It turns out that that Talon is a long-dead man who has been revived, like a zombie. It's kind of freaky. It's a little confusing. He explains to Dick that this Talon is actually Dick's ancestor. Dick gets mad, but then Bruce hits him in the face and knocks out a molar, and it turns out that there's an owl inscribed on it. Meanwhile, the old woman has revived an army of Talons, these zombie Talon guys, and she sets them loose on Gotham, telling them, go and take Gotham City, the end. So, great, great summary, Todd. Uh, our listeners may be wondering what happens next, and I just want to say we learned our lesson in our second episode when we tried to tackle 25 issues of <laughs> Astonishing X-Men, and in retrospect, probably bit off more than we could chew. <laughs> probably should have just done six or seven issues and called that good. And so we are doing uh, the first, I think it, this was seven issues, and calling it good, and just know there's another graphic novel that picks up the next part of the story. It's called City of Owls, and I haven't read it. Have you, Todd, you've read it? Yep. Is it worth it? It's pretty great. Uh, there's different artists during the run. It's not all Greg Capullo, which sad. I really like his art. Yeah, I really I like the it. color work in the first seven issues. But uh, the story is still strong, and it, it expands it into a much larger conspiracy. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember. It's a it's a big kind of three-segment arc where the third is the, that Death in the Family series. Um that I have not read yet. Okay. I have not read uh, City of Owls. Nor have I. Okay. So as far as I know, the owls go take over Gotham. That's it. And that's it. That's the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Where do we go from here? First thing I want to mention. It's a go-to thing that I've uh, seen. Uh, Buffy did it. Doctor Who's done it more than once. But taking or inventing a children's rhyme always works to make things creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Snyder invents this children's rhyme about the Court of Owls in Gotham City. And, yeah, it's creepy. <laughs> and it has this rhythm. I mean, just like I said, Buffy the Vampire Slayer did this in uh, in an episode. And Doctor Who has definitely done it more than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you get children chanting something in a sing-song voice. And somehow it just makes everything a little more off. And, and like, you, you, it puts you on edge, I guess. Why does it do uh, that? Why, why is it that the, that would have that effect on us as readers to use a children's uh, nursery rhyme. I think it's because we know as viewers and readers that there's something more to it. And so there's this, uh, you, you're juxtaposing the innocence of the children uh, and, you know, the, the games that children play with something that you can only assume is going to be horrific in some way. <laughs> and I think it's worse than that because the, ch- the nursery rhymes themselves like ring around the posy a ring around the rosy and uh, crazy stuff like it's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. There's such a darkness behind them. The guy went to bed with a bump on his head and didn't wake up in the morning. Like, don't <laughs> sleep with a concussion. You will die like your Uncle Gary or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the, ring but around the, whole the rosy thing, is about scarlet fever, isn't it? Well, or is or it plague? plague? I think it's the yeah, plague. The plague. plague. Because ashes, ashes, they all fall down. Yeah. I've heard refutations of these interpretations as well, so I'm wondering if we even know what that one's about. <laughs> well, and, and what they're really about doesn't matter because what's going on is we now, from this perspective, think all the stuff for kids is really actually very dark and wicked on the back end, you know, like Grimm's fairy tales. Right. And as you go deeper into it, this is like subconscious playground stuff. And 
so I think I think we're absolutely right. It's it's very creepy. I think it's creepy because all this other stuff is creepy. I agree with that. But I think it's all creepy because of this juxtaposition of what you know, the innocence of what childhood should be mm-hmm. versus kind of this double meaning of some of what's going on. There's no playfulness though in this children's rhyme, and that's where I think Snyder could have probably reeled it back. <laughs> it's just a, it's very in your face and it's very it's just a warning. <laughs> yeah, it's like do not go in there. It's not it's not like, oh, if I think about this for a minute it's very scary. It's like no, this is just scary. There's a yeah. <laughs> there's a, a photograph um there's a photographer called Gerda Taro and she she was one of the first war photographers. She she took pictures of the Spanish Civil War and she has a series of pictures of kids at play during the Spanish Civil War. And uh, one of them is these kids with these play play guns, and they're, um, you know, like playing. It looks like maybe a game of you know cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians or some game that you know like we maybe played when we were kids. And then you look at the picture again, and you realize that uh, a, a a bunch of the kids are lined up against a wall, and the other kids are are pointing at them with their Yeesh. with their rifles, and you realize it's an execution. And it's it's like deeply unsettling to see this this dark side of of child's play and the 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 nursery rhyme conversation makes me think about about that that and I and I wonder if if there's anything healthy in that like because now it's like oh don't play with guns or you know don't think those dark thoughts. And I think we've done a lot to try to sterilize childhood for kids, and yeah. and I wonder, I wonder about that. See, I think that's Batman's enduring um, feature. If you take a look at um, Superman, had a traumatic childhood, but it was early life, and he found adopted parents that loved him a great deal, taught him the value of work. I mean, he stands for everything that um, conservative America stands for. Bruce Wayne had a traumatic childhood and he turned into a crazy person. <laughs> um, like obsessed beyond belief. <laughs> and so um, what I think is so interesting is our very first superheroes had traumatic childhood events that ended in different pathways for each one of them. But I think it's so interesting that time and time again, as we revitalize the characters, Batman wins. I mean, the discussions going on right now on the initial screenings of Batman versus Superman. Uh, you probably—I don't know if you've read about them, mm. where um, the production team uh, just sort of stood up in the middle of the screening, I guess, and said, uh, "We want three more Batmans from Ben Affleck." <laughs> and and everybody's like, "Well, what about Superman? He's in this movie too." And it's kind of as if everybody has forgotten that because there's something—I don't know—rich, enduring. Uh, uh, upsetting something that needs to be analyzed about Batman. And I think it's something incomplete. I think it has to do with people's people trying to understand their own childhoods and trying to understand trauma. I mean, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but very clearly Batman wins. He At just, the same time though, I think it's underselling Superman because he has as long, I mean, a slightly longer history and probably more adaptations when you count the early stuff. Batman, but yes, I think there's more. Seems to be more resonance with Batman, uh, and and more, uh, I guess, attachment to Batman than what we see with Superman. Do you think it's a reflection on our time now? 
that Batman maybe resonates more than Superman today, well, seemed, or or would that always I, be the case? I think it's more from the '80s on. Okay. Uh, well, it was su- initial. It, early Batman is really dark. You know, he had a gun. He oh, shot yeah, people. Super. Darker and, than any, I mean, we call the '80s on and nitty, you know, gritty Batman. But the first Batman was 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 like you said, really, really dark. And and the history of it's really interesting. So you know, Bob Bob Kane wants to come up with this crazy character. If you've read the stuff on Bill Finger, what yeah. Bill Finger went in and added into the character, I would say that stuff that's happening between uh, thirty eight and forty is what gives us the Christopher Nolan Batman of now. Like it, it allowed it in the mythos, but the DC came in and said, Hey man, lighten this thing up. You need to have a little kid in there. Let's not have guns. Let's not have them killing people. Come on. And, (laughs) and so it goes into this zany period, particularly in the silver age where there's like dinosaurs and time travel and (laughs) he's wearing bright colored costumes all the time. Yeah. He's pink, pink Batman suit. It it really becomes more sci-fi than, uh, urban. Yeah, and that's a really interesting time where Bat- where Batman's buffoonery period kind of goes straight through Adam West in the late sixties, and and then everybody kind of wants Dark Batman back, and Tim Burton kind of go re reuncovers Dark Batman, um, and Frank Miller in the and yeah Frank uh-huh. Miller that was my turning point um, for comics. I was like, whoa, this Dark Knight series is great, and I have the ones that I bought when I was in high school and said this is a pretty cool thing because. At that point, Batman was lame for me. Um, there was, you know, periods, um, periods of kind of dark Batman with the Neil Adams stuff. Um, in that period, where he becomes really, really naturalistic, the, the Denny O'Neill and the Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill story time, uh, story period. But, but it's fascinating to me what Batman has become and how uh, he sort of gets pulled in different directions. But he seems to come back to this stuff that was happening very, very early on. In the origins, it's like this self-correction. So it's not full reboot, and, and I think that's what Snyder's doing here. It's a self-correction. Let's get it back to the, this really core idea of here's a dude who watched his parents die, and he kind of never handled it very well. So here's uh, a question I have for you, both of you. Uh, so Denny O'Neill, in an introduction to a collection of Batman stories called Batman in the '70s, he said that in his mind. Yeah, and he was a writer in the seventies. There were five Batman up to the point where he he kind of in his he and Neil Adams worked to make the fifth version of Batman. The first was the wealthy gentleman vigilante, and then the second was the paternal costumed <laughs> gentleman crime fighter. After Robin got ended, add, added into the mix, and then he says the third version was uh, Batman the comedian. That's the the sixties, or, or no, I'm sorry, the third version was the. Um, the science fiction of the fifties and then Batman the comedian in the sixties is the fourth. And then he called his version with Denny O'Neill, the magic realism of the seventies. <laughs> and then I argue that it, it would get a lot, you get this dark, uh, darker and angrier one in the eighties and it gets like pushed to extremes in the nineties and, you know, gets to the point where he's like trusting no one and is, you know, has files on how to defeat every single person in the entire universe <laughs> <laughs> and all these other things. And, and the party seems Batman. To... party Batman. <laughs> yeah. And then this seems to be, uh, I mean, it's the new 52. They're, they're trying to reestablish and make it a new entry point. What, what would this version of Batman be to you in these six or seven issues we've read? Ooh, that's a great question. I'll let you take it. It's first. not as angry as it seemed to get in the nineties and early two thousands. Would you agree with that? Yes. It's, but he's 
he's still obsessed. <laughs> he's obsessed. I think there's such a focus on him being a civic leader. I mean, that's the thing that emerges from this story more than anything. You know, he there's so much time spent on his civic roles as Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne, yeah. Um, and as the leader of a company and as a person who's trying to not just um, take out crime in the streets, but he's also trying to um, build up a yeah, better spend, place. spend money wisely in the city and really work on urban development and social justice and stuff. And You know, I think that might be what's more different about this version than, than the Batman is the different Bruce Wayne that we get. I'd go um, for it. He's very he- handsome. <laughs> um, in this version. And I think that that's interesting for my money. Uh, I've always thought of Bruce Wayne more like the, um, uh, Humphrey Bogart kind of, he's, he's commanding, but I don't think that he's pretty like a Cary Grant or something like that. Uh-huh. And so while I like every single thing about Capullo's art, that is sort of, um, just sort of sky blue eyes and, and everything like that, I go, uh, he doesn't look like a crazy person. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Um, when he's in the Batcave, he does. It's true. He, and, and after he's sort of been starved. He definitely goes super, crazy, yeah. Super thirsty in that period. and, and But, but yeah, I, I would like to see a dude who looks like he's been beat up more. And I will be the first to admit, the Netflix Daredevil has changed me forever on superheroes with – they get beat up all the time. Like I yeah. – I need them to not get stabbed and then get back up and start fighting again. Yeah, which, which he does. Which he does, and I'm like, Ugh, come on. Uh, I was because it's the big. I mean, this is the rhythm, the classic rhythm of comic books: is you end on a full page splash that is like, oh my goodness, how are they going to get out? And then the next issue, they get out of the problem. And you know, this one has the full building exploding at the end of one issue, <laughs> and then the next issue like starts 30 seconds before showing how. It's not as, really as big an explosion as you thought until he's out of the building and then it's a big explosion. Uh, <laughs> I, and this one, also, it ends with him getting stabbed through the gut. And you're like, how's he going to come back from that? And they don't really deal with how he's coming back from that. <laughs> other I, than do that like, I do like how Dick Grayson and Alfred have these conversations among themselves. Did you get him to sleep last night? How, much, how many milligrams or whatever <laughs> did you have to get him? Um, and... For me, that was those are my favorite parts of the story, just where they say, you know, um, and, and this comes up from Arrow and The Flash and other kinds of um, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where it's like, look, there are superheroes, but there's kind of this, this ground team that helps them do their stuff. I really like watching the, the mechanism of how uh, Alfred and the Bat family and everybody kind of helps this dude do stuff. And he thinks, you know, he thinks he's so alone or like, I work alone. I don't have partners. <laughs> and, and he's always getting help. He's always getting stitched back up. He's always getting people who are getting his back. And I really like it that I, that I get a chance to see that, that this is his dude. This is the dude's network. And these are the people who get his back. And when he goes off on his own, you know, like action heroes from the nineties, that's when he gets locked in the labyrinth and goes mad. Like Batman wants to be alone, but he actually really needs people in order to be successful. I like Gordon in this. And, uh, yeah. I mean, we don't get a lot of him, but the keeping the, keeping the bat, the bat signal on, you know, yeah, until he burns uh, it out. Until he burns I love it that out. Part. <laughs> and, and this is what, when Batman is in the labyrinth, he right. leaves the, the signal on and, Bullock, if you've ever watched Batman the Animated Series, you know Detective Bullock. He's like, why, why are you turning this on? He's obviously not coming. And Gordon has this great monologue about how it's not for Batman. It's yeah. for the city. It's for the citizens. It's for us. 
And they do that great series of panels when everybody that it's for, it presents them. And it's even Catwoman out there going, is Batman okay? Yeah. And so this is why it's not fully a reboot. It's a treat for people who know the mythos, who know all the characters and can read in there and see the stuff and go, oh, okay, that's cool. Yeah, that that whole Catwoman thing, that's a thing. And it doesn't detract from you if if you're just trying to get an entry point in the comics. But it's a real – there's a great series of Easter eggs if you are a reader of Batman and you kind of know the stuff. Uh, Particularly how all the stuff – they use the stuff in the Batcave when the Talons finally approach. You know, Later on they come in and they attack him in the attack on Bruce Wayne. uh, No, I'm sorry. I'm going to City of Owls. Don't listen to me. (laughs) Anti-spoilers. Anti-spoilers. I was like, wait a second. I don't – that sounds cool. I want to see that part. (laughs) Okay, so um, go read City of Owls because this cool thing happens in the Batcave. (laughs) Is there a word for uh, uh, what I just did? It's not really spoilers. It's like uh, I it's foreshadowing. Went I went out of bounds. <laughs> <laughs> That's a penalty. But anyways, that stuff, that behind-the-scenes stuff is what I love the best. The thing that surprised me most when I was reading this was uh, this story of um, young Bruce being convinced that his parents' death, death was not random and – becoming a detective really early um, and that this is his first case is trying to find the court of owls and actually finding it. I mean, it seems like he finds it, uh, gets locked in this place for over a week and ends up comatose and they, you know, barely save his life. And that it just add, it adds one more layer to uh, the trauma of, you know, young Bruce Wayne's life. There's a really great article in The Atlantic from May 6, 2014 called Batman's Traumatic Origins. And it talks about Bob Kane when he was a kid. So Bob Kane created Batman. And uh, apparently... With Bill Finger. Got to get that in there. Okay. Well, that's, that's official now. He's finally going <laughs> to yeah, get Bill a, a credit on uh, Batman. Uh, Batman Proverbs. versus Superman and, and... Gotham. So here, real quick. Uh, Go ahead. Comic historians have known this for a while, that Bill Finger had a huge role in creating Batman. But uh, Bob Kane, his dad was a lawyer and <laughs> got <laughs> got some early credit uh, squared away legally over that most comic book creators did not have legal advice when they were working for the early comic book companies. So for decades, officially and legally, Bob Kane was the sole creator of Batman. And Bob Kane worked to perpetuate that version of Batman's creation. Uh, But now, officially, Bill Finger's getting uh, credit on all future Batman adaptations. So, created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Super, super nerdy footnote. If you go back to the Dark Knights, what is it, 85, 86, the Frank Millers, they're dedicated to Bill Finger. Wow. Yes. Like I said, uh, a lot of the comic book industry and, and comic book historians have really been trying to push Bill Finger's importance in this uh, for a while. And so, yeah, that's a uh, nice nod from Frank Miller in that one. And if we can put in show notes, there's also a great children's book on Bill Uh, Finger. Yes. uh, There's another one that's about the creators of Superman. uh, Yeah, uh, we got it in my 10-year-old and I read it, and I was absolutely enchanted. He was bored out of his mind and went to play Minecraft, but I loved that they wanted <laughs> to educate the children on the truth uh, of the creation of Batman. So this this article from The Atlantic just talks about um, an experience that Bob Kane had, apparently, when he was a kid. 
uh, and it's drawn mostly from his own memoirs. So, I, I mean, I suppose we could take it with a grain of salt, but apparently when he was a kid, he got beaten really badly by a gang of kids. And they they broke his arm, they broke his hand. They, I mean, it was a, like, a, like a real live Batman kind of beating that he got. And, uh, and this article talks about, it kind of draws connections between some of his early descriptions of Batman and some of, the, some of Batman's fights with uh, things that happened in this to him when he was a kid. And um, it just draws a really nice, uh, some really nice lines between uh, Batman and trauma and Bob Kane. And, um, and that's, like I said, that's what stood out to me as I was reading this is I just think it's, it's maybe impossible to overstate the importance of Batman's origin and this origin in trauma and the way that that haunts him really forever he never gets over his parents death he never gets over the trauma of that night in uh in any of the versions that i've read and I, i'm not as nearly as familiar with batman as you are but seems really really important and i think that idea of the trauma i think it gets into why the court of owls is such an issue for for batman um i think it's frank miller who really put forth the idea that um the reason Bruce Wayne or Batman doesn't have like a Lois Lane the way Clark Kent does, or you know, Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane the way Spider Man does, is because Gotham is his love. Like, <laughs> you know, for him, Gotham City is the love of his life, and this presence of the Court of Owls is like a deep dark secret that the love of his life is kept from him, and it feels like a betrayal to him. Like it's he's acting like a scorned lover in some ways, and his obsession to try and find out the truth of of the, like, is this really going on in my city? You know, did, uh, did this love of my life really have the secret this whole time? It's absolutely true that Gotham is a character in this for sure, but in lots of Batman stuff, Gotham takes on character in, in the ways that, uh, cities and settings rarely do. I think one of my favorite, uh, contrasts I wanted to say real quick, is the Batman, the animated series versus Superman, the animated series. They're you know done by the same production team and and creative team and everything, but the Batman Gotham City is just so dark. It's all shadows all the time. <laughs> like you watch the opening credits and there's, it's just these black you know monoliths all around. That's right. crazy. Uh, Batman and then the Superman one, it's all bright. Even the nighttime shots are bright white glowing buildings because <laughs> Metropolis represents hope and Gotham City represents uh, dystopia. Yeah. You know, Metropolis is supposed to be the utopian hopeful dream of what a hero could do, and Gotham City is the city that needs revenge because it's it's rotten <laughs> you know my favorite batman at the moment is lego batman <laughs> <laughs> and and i Le- just lego does so many good things <laughs> and i just rewatched the lego movie with my four-year-old and i was you know because i knew we were getting ready for this and i was really watching that batman carefully it He's is so good absolutely dead on satire of the batman that we're talking about yeah i mean he's so messed up and so narcissistic and <laughs> and that he can't have a relationship with uh what's her name well, wild child of the the wild side wild side wild style wild style that's right he can't <laughs> even have a, a relationship with her and it just all falls apart because you know like that part where she's like she failed him because she's going to run off with it with the guys in the Millennium Falcon. And he comes back. He says, I got a hyperdrive for you. Like, like he's so on all the time. And um, I, I realized that 
Batman is so complete a character for everybody that they can run that satire without explanation and people get it. They yeah. get the jokes. They get why it's funny. And I think it's fantastic that we can look forward to a full Lego Batman movie because I want to hear Will Arnett's voice all the time. <laughs> Real quick, what is perfect. the song that he plays? <laughs> I just remember laughing uproariously at the oh, yeah, song. It's, oh, it's, 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 it's like this Nine Inch no Nails thing. <laughs> yeah, I got it's darkness. Da, 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 da. <laughs> um, but again, you can't satirize something unless it's really firmly entrenched and everybody yeah. gets it. And and sixties uh, Adam West Batman is not satire. It's camp. It's, it's camp. Yeah, it's full on. Let's just um, play around with this. So, anyways, I thought I would throw that in there because I think that what Snyder's doing is playing with people's baseline, fairly deep understanding of the character, even if you're new to it. Um, and so it's not. It's a really weird. It's not a reboot. It's a kind of reimagining, and it's a re-exploration of a lot of the key features. Let's take everybody through Gotham. Let's take everybody through um, his boyhood traumas. And each time he hits one, he opens it up. So we don't go to Crime Alley, but we go to other ways to explore how young Bruce Wayne is dealing with the fact that he's an orphan. And that that may be the brilliance of the story for me, is how it goes into these places and really definitely moves around all the stuff that's cliche and gives us a different facet or a different side. So I've got a question for you, too. Um, we've discussed a couple of different detectives now on this uh, podcast. Um, talked about uh, Bones, and we talked about uh, Dupont and uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue. We touched Castle. on... Uh, oh, we did Castle. We've talked, we've touched on uh, Sherlock. And um, so... Batman is a detective, and I think that sometimes people forget that, that when we think of him mm-hmm. as superhero, we forget that he's also detective. Um, and having just a couple of weeks ago talked about Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is the the origin of all detective fiction, how do you think Batman holds up in this story or in other stories as a detective? I have a quip. It started in Detective Comics, right? So that's the crossover point for me. It was no, it was no weird move for them to have a detective as the center of a comic book. And maybe it's right. weird to us now. Yeah, Detective Comics. Just for listeners, it was an anthology series where every month there'd be three or four different stories in it. And Batman First Appeared was in the thirty seventh issue, thirty ninth issue, somewhere. Well, in the, I think thirty ninth. All right, like thirty ninth issue of Detective Let Comics me. just had Batman as. One of the stories you can check the recesses of. Your I have mind. the complete history right here. Let me <laughs> let me consult while he t- while you talk. Yeah, and uh, and kind of like uh, Superman was on the cover of Action Comics number one, but it was supposed to be swapped out for other characters with each issue. But Superman definitely kind of took off and became the mainstay of Action Comics after Batman appeared on the cover of Detective Comics. Uh, he became the mainstay almost immediately and kind of overtook all the other anthology features that were present within it. And like, I mean, those titles were meant to represent what was going to be going on in these stories. Action comics was going to be, you know, romantic adventure and detective comics was going to be crime and, and mystery. And Batman definitely fit that more. And Superman fit, you know, action comics more. 27 came out in May, May of 1939. Maybe that's why I said 39. (laughs) 
Um, but I, some of my favorite versions of, of Batman are when it focuses on mystery and detective elements more so than action and fighting and, you know, swooping off of skyscraper sides of Batman. Uh, but it's not always like the most consistent element that you see. Like I'm trying to think of which Batman film has really played up the mystery side more. And it's hard for me to come up with one that is really playing up the detective side. It seems like the Nolan, side. like the Christopher Nolan Batman, the Dark Knight Batman, uh, from the films, I don't get as much of the detective no. vibe from that. But in Court yeah. of Owls, I do. It's like mm-hmm. let's get the DNA from under his under his fingernails, and it reads like a really great crime procedural. It, but it's not a whodunit. It's not. It's not. There is no contract between. I don't feel like there's a contract between me and Snyder that Snyder is giving me clues, feeding me clues along the way, and that I'm supposed to figure this out. Uh, it's not that kind of detective fiction. Because um, I mean, as readers, we're kind of like, "There's going to be a quarter of owls. There must be a quarter of owls." Like <laughs> right. that's our reaction the whole time. But uh, the mystery is kind of like, how has this quarter of owls been there under Batman's nose, and he's never found it? And yeah. I think that's what makes him crazy. And I think. You know, when you look at detectives, whether it's um, uh, Sherlock or Monk or um, anything, there's this whole line of exceptionalism to these detectives, which is a polite way to say people who may or may not be on the autism spectrum. <laughs> and you see over and over again that there's this there's some sort of thing that makes them different. So the BBC, you know, current. Benedict Cumberbatch one. I mean, there's so much about their not understanding social cues, et cetera. Right. Um, but, but Batman's problem, Bruce Wayne's problem is compulsion. Born of the trauma, right? He just simply can't let stuff go. He's, well, that's what I would say. Yeah. Like his, you know, compulsion is an attempt to kind of control the random things in the world. And if he can kind of organize things or put things in files or, um, frame everything in terms of an investigation, then he's got some control over it because, you know, his big trauma was a time when he was ineffectual and could not do anything. And various retellings of the crime alley scene, you know, kind of neutralize him as any, having any chance at all of helping. Um, and so, I mean, that's Batman's thing. He's, he's really, he's obsessed and he's compulsive. I was going to say, I've, I've viewed Batman as having like the longest, obsession with revenge not just with control but like he's getting revenge on the idea of crime because that's why i like it when batman's parents murder or bruce wayne's parents murder is just a fluke because he's not angry at joe chill he's angry at the idea of like urban decay and crime and he's going to get revenge on that as long as it's out there you know for him to attack he will have his revenge which is different than like superman who kind of represents this icon of hope or Spider-Man, who's trying to overcome his guilt in his own negligence that led to his uncle's murder. Batman just wants revenge. And we need a Korean Batman movie. <laughs> and they can uh... fully explore... We can fully explore the revenge narrative in its fullest. The Koreans have taken it to a, a, a high art. Uh, old boy and all this other stuff. It would, it would be amazing to see... It would just be amazing to see Batman translated into another culture... Yeah, but uh, you know there are s- revenge narratives are so common, much more common in other parts of the world, and it, it's just it's really interesting to see that because I, who what other superheroes are on a revenge thing? I mean, Punisher, 
Punisher. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the go-to Punisher. Uh, for listeners who yeah, don't know, the, Punisher, the Punisher. His, his family was killed by a random mob, and he goes out to kill all mobsters. That's it. <laughs> They're on out. Yep. You don't want to be a mobster near the Punisher. Sometimes when we talk about, oh, all of these, this big wave of uh, police crime procedurals with interesting detectives that are socially, you know, that kind of struggle socially, but they're brilliant, uh, I think we forget that it's possible that Batman fits in with that arc, although it's not, he's certainly not exactly the same thing. Because, yeah, he's... You know, got the dual identity, <laughs> pushing it. <laughs> That's and that was so great about the Tim Burton one. It's like, look, uh, this guy dresses up like a bat. Let's remember that. That's weird. Yeah. Um, but but if you think about it, becoming sort of obsessive workaholic police detective that that's common in the trope. I mean, there's almost no cop who's fine. Yeah. I mean, more than more than any other kind of uh, figure. And so it's interesting if you start thinking about the police procedural and what it's supposed to do, which is give people faith that the chaos of, um, you know, sort of random crime, it's going to be managed by the police and the justice system. That's the whole law and order thing. Uh, it doesn't always work out perfectly, but but everybody be cool because people have got your back. But when you start looking into, you know, the Batmans of the world or um, the um, sort of maladapted, social, socially not okay detectives and police, you have this really interesting situation, which is, wow, if all of the police are this broken, <laughs> like, like, what kind of decent heroes do we have? I mean, you might want to say maybe Jim Gordon is the only person who's, who's a grounded police officer. Yeah, but then you find out about his home life and yeah, some issues. Exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, we can't stick around with this gem. This is crazy. Um, because, you know, I guess, what is it? Work. They all have a work-life balance problem. Yeah. And Batman's is really bad. <laughs> really, really <laughs> It's bad. really bad. The, so the last question that I had about that, and maybe we can take this as a, sort of a, a, an ending point. When uh, Bruce is arguing with uh, Dick Grayson... Uh, and Dick is saying, listen, Bruce, the court is real. Like you have to open your eyes and see that this is real. And then Bruce tells him, well, guess what? I've already looked into this. It was the very first thing that I did as a kid after my parents died was look into the court of owls. And then I almost died. And then I looked into it a couple other times and I'm telling you, it's not real. Listen, Dick, you have to remove emotion from the equation and be objective. Like I've told you. What do you make of that? Is that is that him just to- totally not realizing what's going on? Yes, that is a lack of self uh, self awareness. <laughs> that his his story is so emotion laden. <laughs> uh, as he's saying, you have to remove e- emotion. Let me tell you about one of the most traumatic and emotion filled times of my <laughs> life, and how I've now learned to remove emotion. <laughs> yeah, see, if Batman really would have had a girlfriend or a wife, she would have said, Bruce. Every single case of yours is emotion because you're, you're weird. And, and but, a lot of people, you know what? They can stop working and they can come back in the morning. Oh, I was going to say, when we talk about like the, the identities of Batman, that you got Bruce Wayne and Batman, and we're talking about his work-life balance. Like, what, which is the part that relaxes? Because <laughs> <Like, 
because he's doing a performance often when he's in earlier versions when he's doing the Playboy version of Bruce Wayne. Like that's a performance. And this one is being, as we've said, more philanthropic and and trying to be more of a civic leader. Uh, but still, I think there's a perform- performance there that's not the real Bruce slash Batman. So when should he relax? Like which? I'm not which a psychologist, is- but I eat lunch with them regularly. <laughs> and I would say I'd go postmodern on this. I would say there is no Bruce Wayne. That that trauma has sort of he's arrested development. And I would say that he's built the identity of Bruce Wayne and he's built the identity of Batman, but none of them are true. The, each one of them is a performance. So he's himself when he's in the Batcave with his mask off, but he's wearing the Batsuit. <laughs> yeah, may, may, maybe. Or, or <laughs> maybe there is relaxing. no maybe there is no time that he is himself. You know, I remember a Batman the Animated Series episode, and this is going back. I haven't rewatched this in a while, but this is as a kid. I remember there was an episode where Bruce Wayne went to this place where there was like this new age psychologist who was supposed to be helping all the rich people. And, but really each one that after they came out, like bad things happened to them, they were getting blackmailed or they were being robbed <laughs> and presuming to figure out what's going on there. And there's this big hypnosis thing going on where the, the, the bad guy was like, you know, hypnotizing and tricking all of these rich people. And he did it to Bruce Wayne, but it didn't work. And at the end of the episode, like Alfred was saying, well, you know, hypnosis should have still worked on you. Why didn't it work? And his answer was, I don't think of myself as Bruce Wayne. And he was trying to hypnotize Bruce Wayne. Huh. That is a perfect um, answer. It's really <laughs> yes. interesting. Uh, Bruce Wayne can't be hypnotized because he doesn't exist in my head. Yeah. Or he's been compartmentalized to be protected and you'll just never get at him. So, so here's my final question about Bruce Wayne and Batman. Um, so we've established the fact that he is pretty much incapable of removing emotion from the equation, that he's obsessed with this trauma and revenge, uh, and yet he's known as the world's greatest detective. Um, so is he? I mean, is he, the world's greatest, is he the world's greatest detective? And if so, what does that tell us mm. about detective work? Because that seems to, that seems to go way in the face of what we know about or what we think about detectives and the certainly the the stereotypes being objective, yeah, Dupont or Sherlock Holmes or any of these people who seem to be able to. It seems like their superpower is that they are able to remove emotion from things and think really logically and objectively about things. Uh, and then on the other side of this equation, we have Batman, who is, <laughs> who is just this raging ball of uh, emotion, and yet he gets the title World's Greatest Detective. So what's up with that? I think Batman slash Bruce Wayne, however you want to think of him, uses that emotion to fuel an obsessiveness that goes beyond what anyone else would be capable of <laughs> when it comes to examining not just the big picture, but really studying each piece of the puzzle in minute detail. And if he didn't have this kind of roiling anger underneath the surface, he might stop. <laughs> but because he has that, he will not stop. And uh, he's, you know, his obsession takes the form of uh, understanding everything that he sees before him as he's trying to solve this crime. So it's not objective, I guess. It is just obsessive. And he's like a completionist, and he just has to go th- – he's got to go to the end. But I wonder if he – I think he might not be the world's greatest detective. 
in the end, when you when you take all the Batman versions in aggregate, I think he's the world's greatest tactician. <laughs> I, th- I think that his the thing that makes him able to conquer people who are you know physically overpower him or have have greater superpowers or whatever is that he can think so many steps in the future that he's ready. And this is why fans always want Batman to beat Superman, even though objectively that makes no sense. Right. He would just punch him once really fast. And that's it. <laughs> End of the fight. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how they do this in the film. Exactly. I'm guessing, I, like you said, uh, there seems to be this, the, Batman wins the, the cultural zeitgeist. And so I'm guessing Batman will come out looking cooler in the Batman versus Superman film. Yeah. It's probably true. He'll do anything. That's, I guess, that's the the thing that makes him win. He says that in the in uh, the Frank, Frank Miller Dark Knight, Superman's a good person. Batman doesn't care about being a good person. He cares about winning. <laughs> and and I guess that's why I think he's a tactician more than anything. I think being a detective serves his greater goal of always winning. <laughs> I like that. Well, any final thoughts, Todd's? More Batman all the time <laughs> Todd Todd can vouch for this he's been to my office I have way more Batmobiles in my office at work than any grown man should have so I am obsessed about Batman Batman iconography I think it's wonderful I have always always connected with Batman people joke even today somebody uh, sent a thing on Facebook about some guy who'd shaved his mustache into a Batman logo. And I was told, I was told by a friend, I expect to see this on your face by Friday. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of a known quantity for being a little bit uh, uh, obsessed with Batman. I can't explain it to myself, but it's, it's just really endured with me for a really long time. And it's, it's, it's sort of exciting to have the rest of the culture going, yeah, Batman's awesome. And I see my, my daughter is becoming obsessed with Batman iconography. She has a Batman action figure in her room. She's 13. Um, I'm hoping that Bruce Wayne is her doctor <laughs> um, and all that kind of stuff. But, but I think it's so interesting to be in a culture now where comic books, popular culture, comic book characters is something that really is seriously being considered as something that's – okay to think about this deeply we went up we went up uh to visit our, our family a couple weeks ago and i have an aunt and her name is nanette and we call her aunt nan and i introduced my three-year-old uh son to her and said ian this is aunt nan and he goes batman <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty great yeah I, yeah i i think batman is uh, fascinating. I I really like this kind of detective angle and the the tactician. I love this idea that that you've um, brought up, Todd. That that he's the world's greatest tactician. Um, and I'm just always fascinated by a good Batman story. Uh, I can't re- I can't read too much Batman, or I just feel like it takes me to a way dark place. Uh, but a little Batman now and then uh, goes a long way for me, and I I really I really like it a lot. Great character, great story. 
All right. Well, I think that will wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the protagonist podcast and iTunes or any other podcast system. It, uh, and also please leave us a review and links to the things we've discussed in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com, where you can also go and see our snazzy new logo. We'd specifically like to thank our listener, Alana, who provided us with the new artwork that you can see on our Facebook page and our, uh, protagonistpodcast.com homepage. So please go take a look at that. And thanks again to Alana. You can also find a list of all of our previous shows and you can suggest stories or give us feedback by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or leaving a comment on our Facebook page. That is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Or again, you can leave a comment at protagonistpodcast.com. We're all on Twitter. There's at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Todd Peterson, what's your, uh, your Twitter? At Todd Peterson, uh, Peterson's all ease. All right, thank you. And if you'd like to buy a topic for us to discuss or support us with a financial donation, you can click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Of all the things we've said, we'd like you to do that one most. So thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and another great story. So long. I did not plug in my hard line to the internet, so I'm going to do that now. That could help.